Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host, Ian Cook, and today we're talking about rethinking classical Indo-Roman trade, the political economy of Eastern Mediterranean exchange relations. The book is published by Oxford University Press in 2016 and is written by Rajan Gurukal, professor at the Indian Institute of Sciences in Bangalore, India. The book casts a critical eye over the exchanges, usually and problematically termed trade, between the eastern Mediterranean and coastal India in the classical period. Using insights from economic anthropology to recast the standard narrative of the time, the book explores the ports and polity in South India, as well as the different types of exchange relations in both the eastern Mediterranean and the subcontinent. The book really is a fascinating, provocative and insightful study, and I had the pleasure of speaking with Rajan just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Rajan to New Books in South Asian Studies. Let's dive straight into the heart of your book. I was wondering what has been the standard understanding of exchange relations between the Indian subcontinent and the classical Greco-Roman world. Why is this problematic and how do you propose that we rethink it? In Indian historiography, first, the problem starts with the term trade itself. It's taken as a universal term which is applicable to any period whatsoever. But uh, we, we have rather profoundly enunciated uh, level of knowledge in economic anthropology relating to forms of exchange, different forms of exchange. Uh, and, and trade is distinguished as that kind of exchange which uh, used money both as means of payment and measure of value, uh, whereas other forms did not. For example, the forms like gift, reciprocity, redistribution, and 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 so on. Uh, Indian historiography never differentiated the history of uh, trade in the context of the multiple forms of exchange. This is one major reason uh, that prompted me uh, to take up the issue. Another one that there was always talk about Indo-Roman trade. At the same time, the exchange related to 1st century BCE to, say, 3rd century CE. Uh, The question naturally came, how could then it become Indo-Roman? Roman-Indian trade, even that expression would be inadequate in the sense. These were exchanges in which India as an entity, political entity that did not exist at that time, uh, did not involve. Whereas in the case of Rome, uh, there was a huge Roman Empire there. And it was not the empire that was conducting exchange directly. These were run by uh, various agencies like uh, aristocrats and financiers and mariners and so on. Uh, mostly Philistines, Greeks, Arabs and so on were the traders. But uh, 
the Eastern Mediterranean exchange was by and large uh, under the various facilities of the empire, which means the exchange took place between an empire and then a non-monetized kind of community in South India, communities in South India. Uh, therefore, I thought it should be uh, exposed that the expression Indo-Roman is a misnomer and that was the second aspect. A third one was that always there was this discussion that it was a big uh, uh, profit accumulating process in South India. A lot of gold came and the Roman Senate became anxious about the drain of gold because they were buying lot of pepper by spending money and so on. So where, where did this money really go and uh, how come that after the decline of the trade, South India still remained in its semi-tribal condition? Uh, that I had to clarify. That was the third reason. And fourth was I found it was unnecessary for Southern India to conduct a trade um, it was also impossible for Southern India to conduct trade in those times because their internal exchange did not indicate uh, any sign of trade-based exchange. They were all based on redistribution and reciprocity and, and so on. Uh, and in Indian historiography, there, has, there have been claims about some of the South Indian chieftains themselves uh, conducting overseas trade and they're going all the way and so on. Uh, so that, in fact, a again, uh, encouraged me to ask the question, what is this trade that we are talking about? And then, uh, you know, I understood it was really a very hazardous uh, kind of organization. It required a lot of institutional structural facilities and um, um, it required... A uh, whole lot of uh, uh, protection from state power and so on, uh, without which it could not have been possible. And then um, the basic economic thing was the demand. It required demand. And did in South India, I mean, uh, in, in South India, develop any effective demand for goods produced in the Mediterranean world? And if you think from the side of the Mediterranean world, Mediterranean world was certainly interested in spices. And they came in their own vessels and their interest was to cross the ocean um, and then uh, ship as much as possible spices and then distribute it all over the Europe. So their interest was real trade interest. That kind of technology did not exist in South India. And it was not possible because they were all in pre-state society situations. Uh, and it was uh, not possible and also it was not necessary either. They were not in that level of material culture necessitating uh, the sophisticated products of the Mediterranean world. In, in these uh, contexts, I thought uh, a, a revisiting of uh, the whole source material was necessary and uh, a total revamping of the whole existing ideas 
and and that accounted for my writing of rethinking into roman Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. That's a, that gives us a great uh, summary of the of the impetus behind the book. I want to talk a little bit about some of the individual chapters in the book. But before we do that, I was wondering, for those who are unfamiliar with your past work, could you tell us how your previous research interests led into this current project? Uh, yes. Uh, I actually studied the socioeconomic and political system of early South India, say, from uh, 2nd century BC uh, up to 8th century uh, uh, AD or CE. As part of that study, uh, it was important for me to characterize the social formation of um, the turn of the Christian era or common era. And then I understood that the society was uh, a combination of multiple forms of exchange, but structured by the dominance of uh, agro-pastoralism. And I studied the internal exchange pattern, studied the redistributive economy, and then incidentally, the, the question of Eastern Mediterranean contacts came in because it was during that period the uh, Greco-Roman traders came and they uh, conducted brisk exchange in spices. And there I noticed that the Greco-Roman exchange was not able to impact the economy of the period, an economy which was uh, largely predatory uh, in nature and uh, redistributive in its operation, and a chiefdom-level society. Uh, such a society or socio-economic system uh, was not seriously affected by the Greco-Roman exchanges. So there I just noted that it was uh, not correct to identify that as a phase of big maritime civilization as early historians thought. In South Indian historiography, we find uh, early historians talking about uh, the period between, say, 1st century, 2nd century uh, BCE and 3rd century CE as period of maritime civilization. Uh, that expression I treated as misnomer and I just left it there. Uh, then after some time, uh, uh, see what I developed only in the form of a paragraph was developed in the form of an essay and I published it in Economic and Political Weekly and then uh, I developed it further and published in Indian Historical Review uh, and in the process then I, I started thinking about the whole thing that uh, it was necessary uh, uh, to do it in a, an extensive way uh, to convince people because people were uh, rather treating my articles almost as uh, expositions of matters of opinion. Mm-hmm. Then I thought it, it was necessary to discuss the whole thing in the light of the source material and also explain um, why even European um, writers on 
into Roman exchange. We are not able to uh, discuss it critically and so on. Uh, that uh, you know led me to do the book. Wonderful. So let's get some details then. Like as you said, these details are important for, for making your argument. Yeah. I was wondering, could you broadly tell us what sort of exchange relations existed both in the Eastern Mediterranean and South India, Peninsular India at this time? Yeah. <coughs> now we have the Greco-Roman writings and then the Tamil heroic poems, which refer to some of the contexts and aspects of exchange relations. Uh, What we hear from the Greco-Roman writings is about the traders from the Eastern Mediterranean world coming uh, in their own ships in search of the spices and they were the ones who could cross the Indian Ocean for the first time. They came in huge hull ships and uh, came with a lot of provisions to spend their time at least four, four to five months ashore. They came depending on monsoon winds and they had to wait at least four to five months to get the return wind. It's, it, in that sense, it was just a, um, an enterprise from their side. Now, from the Greco-Roman accounts, if we get um, a picture of the traders coming from the Eastern Mediterranean for the goods of their choice, in Tamil heroic poems, what we find is the coming of the big ships with gold and going with pepper. This is one passage. Another is that reference to the Western Sea as the sea of the Chera rulers and the sea itself was referred to as the sea of um, gold giving ships. That's the reference. And several such passages are there. Now some of these Tamil passages were interpreted by historians as enough evidence for arguing that the chieftains were able to navigate and bring gold and so on. Um, So I uh, examined the thing in the light of economic anthropology or used the insights in economic anthropology and found out that it was not possible for South Indian economy, political economically, uh, to conduct the trade and there was no need for it. It The local society did not require any of the products from the Eastern Mediterranean world and there was no demand for it. And otherwise, the demand-driven society was coming in their vessels and then they were taking. So uh, it involved a lot of adventurous things. Honest, the cross-oceanic travel, it required um, excellent sail technology and also huge ships which did not exist in India at that time. And they they had to go all the way up to uh, Athens and then into the Red Sea and from there, uh, uh, from Berenike to Koptos through desert and then travel through Nile. And it involved a lot of um, um, 
functions and services and who could have mobilized such thing that was my question a huge empire was there to provide various facilities for this and it was possible for the traders of eastern mediterranean world and their interest was mainly to ship as much resources as possible natural resources as possible from the west coast and then get it distributed with a maximum difference between price and cost so it's a heavily profitable enterprise for them uh, that picture was quite clear but a similar kind of political economy did not exist in the case of southern india therefore i used the uh, a tamil heroic poem cited even by western writers as evidence for uh, the flourishing commerce in southern india in my reexamination of the source material i found that uh, many of the ideas attributed to these passages do not hold good their their literal meaning is different and the connotative meaning is also different and that way uh, i experienced the vanishing of the so called uh, basis of primary source for the arguments and and and, and that in fact encouraged to me to go uh, further to talk about the details of exchange and so on mm-hmm. thank you um let's stick a little bit with the south indian situation i'm going to get to us a little bit about the ports in at this period like what was their function what was their nature how yeah. did they relate to levels of urbanization and and so on ah yes and again in indian historiography we find all the ports mentioned as urban centers now i had a close examination of the archaeology of it and i found out that most of the celebrated ports were mere ferries they they were not having bay for allowing um big ships in and there were no facilities for big ships to get anchored uh the most celebrated port musiris was on uh, the mouth of a river and no ship could enter that a ship had to uh, uh, get anchored offshore and in small boats they had to bring goods uh, to the shore and these were goods for uh, their own uh, uh, certain other items were there of course but mostly they brought their wine their uh, um, uh, fish fat and various uh, thing and also their utensils etc because they had to camp in a place and such camps uh, were part of every port and we have archaeological evidence at arikamedu on the east coast and uh, uh, recently at patnam which is uh, most probably musiris of the time in all these places we find a lot of uh, eastern mediterranean ceramics and allied goods showing the presence of the greek or roman and generally the eastern mediterraneans in in these places uh early historians thought that these were all part of imports uh, and uh mortimer wheeler of course rightly pointed out that arikamedu was a roman colony the romans camped there 
and these are Roman material and so on. Uh, and this was questioned by the so-called nationalist writers saying that the colonial perspective is Eurocentric perspective. It should be questioned and so on. And uh, they ruled out the uh, uh, colonizing thing or Roman colony question. Instead, they said these were all part of uh, the import of the time. Now, I argue that import and export are utterly anachronistic in the present day context if you examine ancient exchanges. Uh, state was not involved in that and there was no question of talking about these uh, concepts in neoclassical economics. Neoclassical economics doesn't have any role. One has to go by the insights in economic anthropology. Uh, this is not to say that uh, value was not there. Certainly value was part of the exchange, but it was not profit. There was no notion of exchange value as such, no price as such. Uh, but at the same time, certainly they had their notions of value. Uh, now, if you uh, take into account the presence of Greek-Roman material uh, in ports, you find that these were all articles used by them. Now, my argument is that there is no single instance to show the penetration of this uh, ceramics into the interior. If one has to prove the import, then all important centers should yield uh, relics of this. That means people were consuming. And they talk about import of wine and so on. But uh, this uh, should not be treated as import of wine. This is bringing wine for the use of Eastern Mediterraneans. That happened to be part of their dietary item. So they brought it. They brought their vessels and their tablewares and so on. We don't find uh, such uh, highly sophisticated uh, uh, Mediterranean ceramics uh, going into the interior or even people imitating that kind of thing. This is another indication. If you have a local imitation, then that shows cultural communication that happened through the artifacts and people themselves started using it maybe as an indicator of status ranking and so on. But nothing of that sort is seen. Perhaps a few chieftains must have been given gifts of wine. Uh, other than that, I don't think any of the ruling personages of the time uh, cultivated the practice of drinking wine because of the contact and so on. Uh, <clears throat> so the two arguments, one, uh, the port town of the period was um, a, a big uh, urban center and then um, a big harbor. The, these two are not supported by evidence. And it also has to be connected to the overall socio-economic situation, political economy and so on, where all, all these are um, uh, and, and not in harmony with this. It's not logical to think about it. So I have characterized them all as ferries. Ferries where uh, Eastern Mediterranean traders had to camp because they had to wait until the return wind starts blowing and to cater uh, to their needs some people also converged 
and lot of traders from the other parts of india the northern part of india they also had come with their himalayan products and products even from southeast asia and so on it was not possible for the greco roman merchants to travel all the way to uh, the southeast asian regions and so on which the arabs did so arabs certainly might have brought the eastern mediterranean merchants traveled only up to at the most arikamedu in the west coast beyond chennai region they did not move uh, but all other over uh, overland merchants long distance itinerants uh, had brought their goods and in that sense every ferry could be a seasonal camp a seasonal camp looking like a fair place with lot of people from different cultures interacting and some of them doing higgling and haggling goods for goods exchange others in a very formal way um, exchanging bulk of goods and so on and then the ships went back that that kind of a situation has to be conceived and i therefore characterized a port of the um, need not be southern india alone a port of even upper northwestern india as just a ferry place a, a fair place which was not urbanized for having a proper urban center one should require a hinterland production center that uh, see that economic link between uh, a hinterland and and then the a port town uh, cannot be established there is no local base for any of the ports of the time so i dismiss the idea that port was a big harbor and an urban complex and also i don't think that it was economically supported by the local populace Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. So one of the things we've skirted around in the conversation so far is the nature of the state or the polity that existed in South India. Yeah. And this, I mean, you've talked about chieftains and so on and, yes. and how what existed in South India was most probably very different from the the Roman world at the time. Yeah, yeah. So Zuni, could you tell us like what was the nature of the polity in, in South India and how did this affect exchange both overland and also overseas? Yes. Uh, the chieftains of southern india during the period were basically hunter chieftains mm-hmm. and they emerged out of agropastoral economy and we have the whole corpus of tamil heroic poems celebrating chieftains as big uh, predatory chieftains their economy was of insufficiency and they compensated the insufficiency of the economy by uh organizing campaigns of predatory operation they in, they in, they invaded the uh agricultural areas and uh, amassed the produce and then redistributed that and so it was a predatory operation or it was politics of plunder that uh, maintained them in power but this could not go beyond a point uh and some of the bards coming from northern india seem to be advising these chieftains uh to be systematic about appropriation of uh, resources from people and so on asking them uh, to learn from what butterflies do butterflies go around taking honey from flowers they don't destroy the flower 
whereas a chieftain is invading a place and plundering the resources and that according to the poets uh, was almost like uh, an elephant entering the sugarcane field and and um, see but such uh, pieces of advice were whispering at the ears of the chieftains they are called cheviari vuru turai this this was something which a poet whispered at the ear of the chieftain uh, secretly in public it was not possible because the passions and values revolved around heroism plunder redistribution and so on uh, but at the same time some of these poets who had experience with the state systems in northern india they thought that chieftains should not be behaving like this they had knowledge about periodic exaction or what is called taxation and instead of this plunder based uh, accumulation of wealth and then redistribution uh, turned out to be something not sustainable according to them therefore they were trying to advise the chieftains now i take this as an indicator of the character of the polity of the period so i i characterize the uh, whole uh, polity as the polity of chiefdom level although in conventional historiography we find historians talking about big kings this that and so on but these were not really kings these were chieftains and different levels of chiefdom could be seen there a village level chieftain and then intermediary level chieftain and then the bigger chieftain so small and big chieftains were there and some three big chieftains were there and their uh, chiefdoms the chera chola and pandya and these were the, called the movender or the three big ruling lineages uh, and i tried to examine their features and i found out that even these higher lineages had not become accomplished dynasties during the period and they couldn't be treated as a representative of the state systems mm-hmm. yeah. thank you so much um it's an absolutely fascinating book i really enjoyed reading it and and talking with you about it today i suppose that now that this book is out you have new projects on the horizon so asun ki tell us what are you working on now what are your future plans uh, yes uh, currently i am visiting professor in indian institute of science where i teach history of science philosophy of science and things like that and also i have a current project uh, on history and theory of knowledge hmm. uh, wherein my a present book the manuscript is with the publisher now it's on uh, history of knowledge production in pre modern india uh, this has uh, again as in the case of my earlier study a certain compulsion the compulsion is that today we you hear a lot about the ancient sages of india producing uh, higher knowledge in a magical way or making god appear before them and uh, provide them higher knowledge and so on but at the same time you large number of texts dealing with uh, uh, techniques of making knowledge reliable uh, texts relating to skepticism almost like the european skepticism of the later period 
uh, even author himself becoming skeptical about the knowledge produced by him or her. Um, and you find a lot of texts clearly indicating methodological preoccupation in, in the process of production of knowledge. Mm-hmm. This is a major contradiction. And even knowledgeable people today go about believing that sages were responsible for production of knowledge and that that they got uh, as part of intuition or a divine or providential gift. Uh, I wanted to question this. So my focus in the book is basically on the actual intellectual process of production of knowledge on one side and then the socioeconomics of intellectual formation. Now, who were the ones who got leisure to think seriously, probe in depth and then produce knowledge? And what were the uh, compulsions behind the pedagogic exercises for codifying knowledge? Uh, communities generated knowledge, they shared it, they inherited it, and uh, they always expressed knowledge in the form of artifacts and products. But you find several texts written. So I asked the question, who were the composers of these texts? And what was the purpose? And I, I deal with the question of pedagogy, uh, pedagogy there. Uh, and also, uh, I try to identify certain problems in this. It's, you find uh, texts not having the actual uh, craft of production of various artifacts. The, the craftsmanship remained with the artisans and craftsmen and that knowledge is not in the text. And now if you use science to analyze, uh, you generate science on the basis of scientific knowledge which is taking science back to the object and I found a hiatus there that there is hiatus between the knowledge that existed during the period and then the knowledge that you take to the source. So it's important to take knowledge from the object rather than take your modern knowledge to the object and attribute that to people. Mm -hmm. An excellent case is that of metallurgy. Uh, Modern metallurgy will help you understand the ingredients of a heightened bronze of ancient period. But that doesn't mean that people had the same kind of metallurgical knowledge that we do today uh, in the past. But they knew the craft of doing it. They had various subtle indicators and so on. They never thought about precise measurements or anything or the melting point of this metal or the alloy. But they knew how to do it. This craftsman knowledge is rather lost and how to retrieve this non-codified knowledge which is um, there in the craft of doing um, and they never asked the question how it worked but they asked the question what it meant to them as procedure. So they had procedural knowledge but not explanatory knowledge. So explanatory knowledge or science that we deal with today will not help us reconstruct the knowledge from the objects, which we think that embedded knowledge in the objects would be equal to the science that we have generated. <laughs> Absolutely fascinating. I look forward to, to reading that. You know, yeah. when it will come out this year? Or uh, next year? Yeah, it's uh, in the review process. Uh-huh. Uh, I think uh, in six, seven months, it will wonderful. be out. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, there's not much more for me to do apart from to thank you a lot for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. Yeah. Thank you so much. 
Thanks so much for downloading the new Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about Rethinking Classical Indo-Roman Trade by Rajan Gurukal. I hope you enjoyed listening to the conversation as much as I did having it, and I hope you listen again next time. Ta-ra!